All right, this is episode 60. This is a great one with Steve Warner. Steve, uh, Grand Old Opry member, he is one of the best guitar players out there, fantastic singer, songwriter. He's had so many great hits over the years, and uh, I just love this guy. He's fantastic and such a nice person as well. Also joining me on this podcast is my co-host, Mr. Jim Witter, a great, great friend of mine. And we all three of us actually just collaborated on a great song called Turn in the Road for my Stonehouse Sessions. And uh, you can get that on YouTube. Just search for Darren Walters. You find all that information on my YouTube page. Also, don't forget about our sponsors. Morning Buzz Coffee Company is uh, based out of Hamilton, Ontario. They're a small batch coffee company. They specialize in fair trade organic coffees, and they are musicians as well. Uh, make sure you check them out, morningbuzzcoffee.buzz on the internet. Also, Music City Canada is one of your one-stop music shop based out of London, Ontario. I buy lots there, as I always mention, and uh, they have everything there you could ever imagine, musiccitycanada.com. Also, My Grandfather's Fiddle, one-of-a-kind custom t-shirts. Treat those you love to a memory of a lifetime. And I, I always say the easiest thing is to go right to their website and check out everything they do. Great Christmas presents, uh, great ideas there, mygrandfathersfiddle.com, or on Facebook, uh, just search for My Grandfather's Fiddle. All right, this is a great one. Sit back and enjoy our conversation with Steve Warner. Okay, we are here officially with a special guest, Steve Warner. So nice to have you here. Uh, and also joining us, a uh, special guest host as well, uh, my good friend Jim Witter. And it's awesome to have both of you guys here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Darren. Hey, thanks, Darren and Jim. Glad to be with both of you guys. It's so nice. Steve yeah. and I go way, way back. Yeah, we so, do. Like 94. I mean, I mean, that's back that's back there for me now when I think about it because it was, is. You know, now. Recently, how I met you, and I was going, oh my gosh, it was. I guess it was on that Chevy Drive tour we did, wasn't it? It was. It was on your Chevy Drive tour, and I just got lucky. I, can't, I your opening acts were uh, Cassandra Vasek and yep. oh Larry um, Stewart. Yeah, oh, and his bus, his bus broke down when you were heading into Canada, and I got a phone call from my agent that afternoon at like two o'clock in the afternoon said, can you get your band together because Steve Warner needs another supporting act for tonight. And we hadn't played in like months. And I called all the guys and we showed up like two hours later. And that and was, you, that was it. Jim, I interrupt you and say, and you said, I'm sorry, who? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And I'll, I'll just quickly elaborate on that story because I'll never forget it. We, uh, we opened the show. Darren, were you playing with me in that band? I was not, but the coolest thing was I was in the audience. I had bought oh. tickets to see the Are show. You? Yeah, Are I was there. It was at Center in the Square, right? Yeah, yeah. Center, in the, Center in the Square. And so it was, uh, so I started the show. And I remember while Cassandra Vasek was doing her set, you came to my dressing room, Steve. Yeah. Uh, I remember. Somebody said, Steve would like to meet you. And you came in and you just thanked me for you know, uh, filling in at last second like that. And uh, 
I just thought that was so cool that you actually made the effort to come and, and speak to me. And I remember that very well. And I do remember uh, that I watched your show too. And I was like, man, damn, this, I got to meet this guy. This is, you were doing some great stuff. And I was really impressed and, and also impressed on top of that, that you pulled that together so quickly and were there. So, and that's the start of it, Jim. You and I were off wheels up and we were gone yep. for that. But when you came to Nashville, we were together. We were, you know, we were, uh, it was, our, our friendship was launched that day. So I think it was. And I think it's a testament to the, the person that you are. Oh, um, man. Just real genuine. Like, uh, you know, I say this to a lot of people all the time. Say the greatest guitar player is also the greatest uh, guy on the face of the planet. It's true. Oh, that's mighty nice of you yeah. to say. I'm, it's audio, but I'm blushing right now. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, I, I look at you, you guys that. Sorry, Dan. No, I, was, I look at you two, both of you guys, and you're, you're like brothers as far as I'd see it. Um, and you both have a such a similar personality. Um, so gracious to both of you guys and, and, you know, just super nice down to earth people. I don't know two people that are more alike than the we are kind of like brothers and it's funny that our interests are so similar right jim because i remember i go i remember talking to you one day and i said hey i know this is kind of corny but i do magic i do some close-up and jim goes oh I, so do i, I go, yeah. what? Then we talk st i still got my membership card in the hamilton junior magicians club <laughs> <laughs> love it i love it every now and then somebody will bring that up they'll go hey you do magic right and i go well, I used to. I don't know anymore much, but but yeah, we used to. You and I remember. You and I, I'd get some new uh, new tricks or something. I'd say, "Oh, Jim, check this out, man." You know. So. I remember it actually during co-writing sessions with you. We'd yeah. you know write for an hour and a half or something like that, and then out would come the deck of cards. He'd be like, "Oh, Jim, have you seen this one? Or, have you seen this? You know." Yeah. And, uh, and speaking of with Cassandra Vasic, they were her and her band were always so nice. We toured all across Canada. I mean, totally West coast to East coast, man. I mean, unbelievable. And I did that in my proud to say that I did that about three times in my career. I've done coast to coast. I'm, I'm proud and love it that I know a lot about Canada. You know, I used to, but yeah. I, I should say I've seen almost every inch of Canada and I love it. The, how different it is to the different parts, but, but Cassandra's band was always so nice. And, Speaking of magic, I remember in Toronto one night we played, and her guitar player, and I'm forgetting. Bernie Labarge. Say that again. Bernie Labarge. Bernie, that's, oh, I'm so glad you said that because my, I'm having a senior moment. But Bernie gave me a magic book, and it's a, it was a real old antique magic book as a gift. The tour was coming, winding down, so, <clears throat> excuse me, or starting to wind down, and and he gave me this, this a gift, and I just it blew me away because we we got to be friends and we hung out, would play backstage and all that. And anyway, this you'd love this book, Jim. It's really an old old magic book, you know. So. Yeah, for sure, that's pretty good. I'm not sure, Steve, you remember this. The first time I met you was on a cruise ship, and it was a country music cruise on the Norway. Do you remember that? <laughs> Man, oh my gosh, who are you there with there? I was playing with a just a local uh 
a guy here. Uh, his name was Billy Newdorf, and we were just we were playing nightly in the in the club. So we were the band that played. And I've done the Norway. I bet I've played on that Norway, the, which is not in commission anymore. I don't think, right. but it. I played aboard that ship on those same kind of cruises probably five or six times. I did. I did one. I did one with Merle Haggard. The yeah, last one I was on. I yeah. yeah. And we wrote a song on that three of Merle and I wrote a song and I actually, honestly, I started writing. It was a pretty good cruise for me because I started writing. I knew when I got back home, I was going to get on a plane and go to LA to write with Clint Black for the first time. I never had, I knew Clint, but I'd never written with him. And so I wanted to go in with some stuff as I always do and try to anyway. And I started nothing but the taillights on that ship, on that cruise. Wow. And, uh, and, okay, and now I, I almost, oh. sorry, I didn't mean to jump in there, but I, I want to say I almost made it on that cruise because you and Karen invited Becky and I. That's right. As your guests on That's that right. cruise. <laughs> and Roslyn had just been born. She was like months old at the time. And I we, remember that, Jim. We couldn't, we couldn't do it. And that was one of the biggest sort of regrets of, of, uh, of my life was not being able to go on that tour because I would have seen you, Darren. I would have seen, yeah. obviously, you. I probably would have met Merle. Oh, you would have been maybe ridden with him, too. You oh, don't, don't. No, don't. you just don't know. <laughs> Way to go, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Loser. <laughs> no, but I'll tell you what, Rod's bragging uh, on her for a moment. She was just born in that story there, but what a beautiful little angel voice, man. He's got a great... I don't mean little as in little. I just mean a beautiful voice and a talented girl. Man, what a great singer. She, thank you. I, I have to say that I'm very proud of her. She's a very unique uh, singer. And I think you're going to hear a lot more from her in, uh, in the months and, and years to come. I tell you what, man, I wish I, I wish I uh, wish things were different and we were closer together. I'd like to be involved in some stuff with her. Uh, just love making music you guys and well you know what maybe we can make something happen uh i mean i know we're living in strange times right now but i think one of the things we're learning is that we don't have to be that close together to collaborate and to work on projects together like we just i've been haven't we jim we've been we've been working on stuff uh, together and and darren us too we've been working on some music together and that's fantastic the technology is incredible these days sound like an old guy here but it's incredible that you can do it what we just did with the you know turning the road and yeah and, because you, know, you recorded turn in the road uh which is a song that you and i wrote together yeah. uh, that was on your faith in you album was it not that, that was on capital that was my uh i did three albums at capital and it was my third album yeah capital Wow. And uh, and then just recently, Darren found the beginning of a recording that we did at his studio uh, with me singing it and yeah. completely forgot about it. And, you know, in the old days, we would have had to have all, you know, gotten together in the same studio together to finish this project. And uh, and here we are now, you know, in 2020, uh, being able to you know, collaborate. It sounds like we're all in the same room together. It's just uh, so cool. that energy's, sometimes I worry about the energy, you know, because as you guys well know, there's nothing like the energy of everybody in the room 
playing together. And we, we, we did it. I mean, you know, you certainly feel it on that record. <clears throat> but, uh, boy, really great job, too, Jim, bragging on you, man. A great, great performance on that. And, Darren, it sounds great. I can't wait to see the video on it and see how it all turned out. But really, really good, man. Really proud of that. So am I. Yeah, it's Very. a special song, and I think it's perfect for these times. And I do, if too. Vito looks good. I'll send it to you when we're done. It's all done. Well, I can't um, wait. So yeah, it's, it's neat. It's a great, it's interesting. I've, I've done a few of these now uh, where I've collaborated with people from all over the place and, and you get tracks in and it's, it's, it's a way different way of listening to people's playing um, and getting to know them it, when they're in the studio, you've got a bunch of guys playing and you're listening to it as a whole. Right. And when you, like get, yeah, but when you get tracks in from somebody it's, it's really like hitting solo and really listening to what actually happened. And it's, it's pretty neat. Yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> it's neat, especially on drummers. I mean, the, um, you really gotta get a, a, an idea of what a drummer does. If he rushes into a, a fill or if he doesn't rush and, and in a performance, usually everyone kind of follows them, right. Or it just kind of moves with them. But when it's just on their own, uh, you find out a lot about players pretty quick. I really try to, what little bit that I do with the doing files and playing long distance. I really try to think in terms of how would I do this if everybody was here. And, you know, so I try to keep that in mind. It's hard to do sometimes, but, you know, uh, try to keep that energy up and try to try to make it be. It's funny with drums, too. You can hear the drummers. They grunt and make noises. <laughs> you know some weird sounds and you know all that but. jim you got a great story of that drummer that recording that yeah i was re i was this was back in when i was you know launching my very first little recording studio and this guy asked me if he could record uh, a drum demo to send off to a band that he wanted to be a part of and i you know i'd never recorded drums before i said i'll give it a try and and i literally couldn't figure out what was guy would listen back to the tracks and be like there's something ringing in there. Like it's just, hmm, hmm, hmm. So we, <laughs> we put tape on all the, anyways, it, long story short, it ended up being the drummer. And as he would hit his snare, he'd go, hmm, hmm, hmm. <laughs> Was well, it he, like the head, the head kind of making a little sound or something? Yeah. He yeah. could not, he could not stop doing it either. Wow. So that's the last time I recorded drums ever. <laughs> I'm done with drums, man. You know. Do you ever miss those days, Steve? Like, do you ever wish that you could go back when, like, say, for instance, Chet signed you to your first deal, and 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 oh. that must have been quite exciting. Well, I listen now. I've got some reel-to-reel uh, half-inch tapes from the day. Not they're just rubs. I got them still. But when Chet Atkins took me into the studio, RCA, and and I listen now and. I remember some of these they we, that stuff that never was released, but I, a couple of them I remember. I don't know why in the world, but I'm it was my first record, first time in the studio, big like a big studio with a real producer and all that. And it's Chet Atkins and Buddy Emmons is sitting there, Reggie Young and, wow. and David Briggs who played with Elvis, and you know it's who's who playing all these instruments, and I'm singing the vocal on these. I guess in my mind I was thinking I'll come back and sing later. I guess. But I'm, I'm, I'm going like, 
I'm like half singing, you know, like a real breathy. And yeah. I think, what did I do it? You know, it's like that was the first session. I mean, I certainly have been in the studio before and I'd recorded a bunch, but just not on that level. So I think I was holding back to come back and sing it later for real, I guess. But I'm, they were never, they never saw the light of day. So now when I hear them, I go, what am I doing? You know, I don't know why I did that. But yeah, there's a lot I would do differently if I, if I could go back in time with Chet Atkins and, and even like Jimmy Bowen and Tony Brown. I'd do stuff a little differently. I was, but you know, Jim, I was so young. I was, we were touring of 200 days a year or so and trying to make a record. And, you know, I would, I would shut down going, looking back. One of the things I would do is I would shut down and not even think about playing the road and I'd be really rested. And I remember making, having hit records and couldn't even hardly talk, you know, from being on the road. And you look, you know, and you look back now and go, what was I thinking? You know, you, but you know, I guess I'm touring trying to make a living and, got kids and but uh, I would certainly you know maybe take it a little more I took it seriously but I just had so many irons in the fire I guess and yeah but anyway I mean you look back though and go man that was a great time I remember looking in the control room and you'd see Chet sitting back there with a cigar he never he never he was at his it was like the Beatles pictures you know he had a black suit on with a little black skinny tie he was dressed up for the session yeah and uh, a different era for sure. It was studio a at RCA and he didn't, by the time I got with him, Chet didn't smoke cigars. He just kind of chewed on them. He quit. Yeah. But he, he always had one and he could smell it when you walked in the control room, you know, yeah. so great memories. Uh, I, think that was, I think that was oh. a, that must've been a, a real sort of uh, old school producer thing because I worked with the producer Nelson Larkin. Oh yeah. Nelson at all. But Nelson was the same way. He would just pull out a, and I would bring him Cuban cigars from Canada because yeah, we could, you, we, get, you guys couldn't get them at the time. Like, and I always was just blown away by the fact that he he never ever lit one. These yeah, really that, Cuban cigars, been, just chewed them. He probably yeah, it must be an old school thing or something. But I remember Chet would walk out the my very first session. He walked out into the room. All the players were tuning up, tuning up. Like I say, it was all like double scale players, you know. I was blown away with this level of players. We had like eight eight players in the room and this gigantic studio A. And I remember I walked out and Chet walked out with me and had a, a chart in his hand, the first song we were going to do. And when he walked out, all the players just I, – I never seen this in a session. All the players, when Chet walked in, uh, they all just turned all their instruments off and laid them down and followed him. They all just went with him like Pied Piper walking over to the piano. And then I kind of squatted down by the piano, David Briggs. And then we ran the song and everybody was listening to what Chad had to say his direction, you know? And wow. he said, well, the first song is it's this. And it's, we're going to, what I want to do is kind of get a, and he explained it and gave out. And now fast forward to now, it's not, it's not even, you know, that world is gone. You know, it's not yeah. that world, not even anymore. You know, in the studio, you know. Would you guys, would you guys like cut like a number of songs in one session? Yeah, we'd do a couple, try to get a couple of sessions, you know. I, it certainly wasn't, I never felt ever rushed, you know, because Chet was, he didn't, he didn't push it, you know, he got, we got what we got when he was happy with it. But we would normally get a song 
a song an hour or so, I would guess, if I had to guess a time frame. Uh, we ran it a couple of times and then we ran it briefly and then turned the machine on and, you know, it was maybe did a couple takes and then moved on. It was the, the caliber of players was scratch stupid. So it was, you know, they were, and they were fine tuning and tweaking uh, on the fly. And then by the second or third, no more than two or three takes, you know, maybe. And, and then uh, by the third take, we usually then people wouldn't fix a few things while, while we listen back, somebody may fix a place or something, but I mean, it was just magical. I loved it so much. Yeah, records aren't made the same anymore. Uh, it's a different world, isn't it, Darren? It's crazy. Uh, I mean, you spend that much time just putting a drum track, like a beat together oh, to play. Oh, I, I worked on things that I'll spend like days and days and days on just a drum and kind of percussive thing. And I, I'll laugh to myself and think, if I had a real player here, it would take three minutes to do this. But I'm taking days. But, I mean, that's how you make make it these days. That's how you do it. So. But, uh, were, you yeah. as, were you as good as you are now when you started making records? Because, or, or were you intimidated? Like, I guess my question is, were you intimidated at all by, by some of those session players? Or, or were, you, were you at that same caliber? You know, Jim, that's really an interesting question. That's, I, I honestly, and I don't mean this in a boastful way, but I actually think I'm a better player now than I was back then. I think I was a, my, Musically speaking, playing-wise, uh, back then I never practiced, ever. I just was on the road. That was my practice. So mm -hmm. I was on the road all the time. And I, when I got home off the road, I'd like, uh, I'd not, but I practice now. I work at it now. And I work and write, and, and I really try more than I did back then, I think. I think playing-wise, I may be better now. I think experience helps along, too, you know, helps that uh, just – being older and wiser, I think. I, singing wise, I think I was a better singer back then. But I, I but I, I think I'm a smarter singer now because I know I may not be able to reach some notes, or but I'm more cautious of what I'll do. I think I'm smarter singing wise. My voice is. I think I had more control back then. It, I think age does that to your voice. I think it just changes. You know, your vibrato gets wider and W I are wider. You know. Uh, but it does. It definitely. That's that's what I think. I mean, as far as if you don't have arthritis, I, there's no reason why your playing can't stay the same or get better. But I, I think the human voice just naturally just ages. But I think there's. I don't know. I think there's something about your voice now because I hear I hear the stuff that you've done lately, and I I think it's it's uh, it's aged like a like a fine wine. Like oh, maybe man. you feel like you had better control back then, but I don't know. There's a there's a little bit of a, a little bit of edge in there now that I think actually makes it really great. Well, that, the texture's different, that's for sure. And uh, thank you for that. I, I look at I listen to my old records, and I I did have more. I had a I had a more of a range. I could really go a lot higher back in the old days than I can now. But I but I'm thinking why why I, to me a lot of I think a lot of times I did stuff just because I could, you know, it's like, yeah. why, what's the point? I think now I'm smarter as far as, uh, I, I, I listen to the lyric and I, and I, I, I really try to figure out what the emotion is. I think about it more back then. I'm just some young dumb kid that's going, Oh, I can hit the, 
I can do these tricks with my with my notes and I can hit that high note. I can hit that real high note if I want to. I mean, I can't do that now, but I think I'm smarter and I think the emotion part is more there now. I would prefer any day to listen to an emotive yeah. singer than a, a technical singer. Yeah, I think you're right about that. It's vocal calisthenics, you know, that's what I say. It's, it's just because you can don't mean you should do it, you know, so. And that's a young thing. I mean, that's you just it that's is, what you yeah, do when I, you're young, player wise and singing wise, and and then yep. you just realize after a while that um, you don't have to do that. And I think when also being a young singer, young player, is that there's a part of you that still wants to impress the people that are around you. Absolutely, and, and you know, you, you're right. And then you throw in, oh, I just had a number one record. Yeah. Oh, I just had another hit record. Then you go. Well, I'm king of the world. I can do, you know, you can, you start getting these almost like you're reading your own hype, you know, so to speak. And then you start th thinking that you, you know, you get that confidence built up and it can be a, it can, it can be great in some ways, but it can be not great in others. So sometimes, the, you know, I remember with my first number one record, it was a song called All Roads Lead to You. And I remember at the party, we had this big first number one RCA had a big party and all my friends were there and stuff. And I remember when the night was over, I remember going back to my little apartment and I remember I was sitting there and I was thinking, wow, it's kind of tired. And I go, unbelievable. A number one freaking record. And then it dawned on me. I go, Oh no, now what do I do? I got to come. I got to be working on something else right now to follow it up, you know? So I just kind of thought, well, you roll your sleeves up and go back to work. You know, it's, it's like winning a – I look at it kind of like winning a football game or whatever. It's like those coaches and stuff, they always say, oh, we're going to celebrate tonight. Then we're going right back to the drawing board. And going yeah. And I just I, – I was – I got a little full of myself for a moment. Then I go, oh, what do you do? Then you look at those guys that have done it for years and years and years, and you go, wow, you know, they, they just keep coming with the hits. And, and it's one thing to have a, some hits, but just to maintain that – level it's unbelievable the people that do it <clears throat> yeah it's interesting when you get people have hits after hit after hit after hit especially after that first one it, it is that pressure to come back and say oh man i gotta do another one or i have to try to get up there yep. yeah it's almost more pressure than, than trying to get the first one in the first place and then a, a lot of people don't this is this part that they don't see behind the curtain to the average the fans and the people out there in the audience, they don't know that while you're having that number one, you're, you know, I'm speaking hypothetically, of course, <laughs> maybe I am, maybe I'm not, <laughs> uh, but they don't realize that, Oh, you're in a fight with your record label at the same time. Cause maybe the head of the label is not real happy with you or something. And then now you throw that element into it too, where you're, you know, you're maybe your producer is leaving the label and going to another one. So there's all these. Okay, now the truth comes out there. We got to get a bit of dirt out of you, my friend. We got to find out. Hypothetically, could happen. You don't know. <laughs> oh, I, mean, I mean, Fleetwood Mac rumors. You know, everybody knows the story. Everybody yep. what a great album that is, but no, not a lot of people know that they were like mortal enemies when they recorded that record. That's Did unbelievable. You, Eagles too. I've heard stories about them of course legendary stories but it's not all smooth sailing behind the scenes but it 
you know, it looks like it is on the radio and you're touring and, and then you, you know, all the, tum the tumultuous things going on in the background sometimes behind this is not fun. So, so when you left RCA then to move over to MCA, MCA, what yeah. was that uh, one of those kind of situations or was it amicable or what was it? It was, well, it was a, it was a little bit tumultuous in a way because uh, I, you know, I won't get into a boring part of it, but I, let me put it to you this way. My producer at the time at RCA was Tony Brown, mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, and Nora Wilson. He, they co-produced me. We, we had Lonely Women Making Lovers and Midnight Fire. And yeah. Hit records. But, yeah. but my contract was coming up at RCA and uh, my producer, one of the producers, Tony Brown, was moving over to MCA. His, he had already left and gone over there, and I had about eight months, six months left on my contract with RCA. So I really wanted to be with Tony Brown at MCA. So I kind of sat out and waited for my contract to expire. And then we had records and I, it was a, it, we had a pretty good relationship with the label, but my big deal was with Noro and Tony. I, those guys were awesome. You know, right? they were musical and Tony Brown, both of them legendary producers. And, yeah. and then when Tony went to MCA, he started getting the wheels turning to kind of recruit me and get me over there. And as soon as my contract expired, I went to MCA and our first hits First records over there were hits. I had what I didn't do, and some fools never learn. And I was going to say, was that like uh, Life's Highway in the weekend? Heart trouble. Yeah, yeah, heart trouble. Yeah, Life's Highway a little bit later, but the weekend. Yeah. So, what was the difference now? If you're talking Tony Brown and any other producer you've worked with, um, even with Chad or anything, what what made him uh, that in that combination work so well? Um, I think <clears throat> I always enjoyed being with those producers that were players and I've kind of found, I always found myself being with most success I had was with songwriters or real music. I mean, you know, they're not, most of them are, but they're not always, but I always really loved being like Tony Brown was a piano player. He worked with Elvis and toured, with, you know, the hot band and he just had a great, uh, was a he was a great musician and had a great ear a great great ear for songs and then with chad of course you know his that musicality i was playing touring with him and while we were trying to make records too i was actually playing in his band so it was interesting uh with him i definitely was intimidated being around him and i was so young and just starting out and chet pulled me to the side one day and he i remember he saying he looked at me i I, he could tell I was being intimidated and being like a fanboy, you know. And I remember he called me over and he said, knock it off. And I go, what, excuse me? And he goes, you know what I mean, knock it off. And he, I go, okay. And so I, he, he called me out on being a fanboy, you know. Yeah, but, I mean, Chet, if I'm not mistaken, he bestowed on you and only a handful of guitar players the, the sort of certification of calling you. Uh, yeah. A, a, a CGP, you know, yeah. uh, right? Yeah, that's correct. And he was doing a, a Monday night, uh, kind of like Les Paul was doing in New York. Uh, he, but Chet was playing every Monday night at a cafe downtown, a restaurant called, uh, oh, uh, this, the, this escaped me. Uh, 
Anyway, I, the name of that restaurant will come back in a moment. I just went blank. But anyway, no, I was, it'll come back to you tonight at around 3 a.m. And I'm calling you guys because I have both your own. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but, uh, but I used to go down and listen to Chad and set in and play. And, and uh, around that time, is, he had a, an album called, he came out with an album called Chad Atkins CGP. And I asked him one day, I said, what does that mean? And he goes, well, I never gave myself, I mean, I never, I never earned, I never went to college and got a degree uh, of any sort. So I just gave myself one. I made myself a CGP, certified guitar picker or player, you know. And so then he, then he, he, he had this idea, he and Paul Yandel, who played with him at, at Cafe Milano was the name of that. Restaurant. There you go. Cafe Milano. And, uh, he and Paul had an idea to bestow this honor on Jerry Reed, uh, who was a, a Chet disciple. And so, and he did it as a, uh, you know, Chet loved Mark Twain. He was a, this thing is very Mark Twain-ish. And it said, where to for as on this day, you're of our Lord, uh, you know, and all these funny Mark Twain kind of things. And the, uh, this proclamation, and he gave it to Jerry Reed. To this day, and this day, making you an honorary CGP, certified guitar picker, and so he did that. Then he did another year went by, and he did it to two or three different friends of his. Uh, as it turned out, he did five, I think, people and made them CGPs, gave them this honor, and uh, then he became very ill, and and it kind of ended that, and he passed. But but, but did he uh, actually like print it out, like or write it out, like was yeah. There's a, I have a proclamation hanging on the wall. It's in the hallway in the wow. stairs there. And that, that's incredible because I think it's just you and Jerry and maybe uh, Tommy. Emmanuel. Tommy Emanuel. Yeah. yeah. Australian guitar player who's phenomenal. And yeah. then John Knowles, who was Chet's yeah. guy, the more academia. Uh, he wrote a lot of Chet's books and did a lot of his formal writing for Chet. Was his dear friend, a classical player. And John lives here in Nashville, and uh, he made us. I think that's, he, and he he made us. I think four of us. I think, and Jerry was the first. Jerry Reed. Uh, it's funny though, Jim. I don't know if you remember this, but I went down. Uh, let me back up on that. Uh, I got a call one day. I had a an instrumental that I had on one of my Capitol albums, and they called and said, "Man, congratulations! You're nominated for a Grammy." I was like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even know that. That's so good. Who am I up against? And they said, Chet Atkins. And I went, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, the Grammys that year were in New York at Madison Square Garden. And so Karen and I go, let's go up to, let's go, uh, we'll go. I know Chet's going to beat me. So we get to New York, and uh, I get a phone call, and it's Chet. He left me a voicemail, and Chet says, hey, Stevie, I'm calling you to tell you that I'm vote. I voted for you Aww. in the Grammys. He said, I, I really hope you win this. He goes, I know I'm up against you, but I hope you win it. I voted for you. And he said, and then he goes, by the way, I've already got 16 of them. Click. <laughs> 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 I've already got 16 of them. What? I'll never forget going to see you uh, and Chet. Well, sorry, I went and saw you at a private performance at the Opry Hotel. It was some gala thing. 
and Chet was in the audience and you got Chet up to perform. And I'll never forget it when you said, oh, a good friend of mine's in the audience. Maybe if we give him some applause, uh, he'll come up and, and play a tune. And of course, the place just went crazy. Like the <laughs> place went nuts because it's Chet Atkins, right? Yeah. And I remember he came up on stage and he whispered something in your ear and you laughed. And I, and I, I remember I wanted to know what it was he said to you. And after the show, we were talking. I said, what did Chet say to you when he came up on stage? And uh, he just leaned over and he said, I get a standing ovation for just showing up. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that. <laughs> oh, my God. I went with him one time, Jim. That's funny. I remember that night, by the way. That was fun. Who was the pro golfer there that was the, the world champ pro golfer was there that night? Oh, oh, gosh. I don't remember. Yeah. Another senior moment. Have a lot of those these days, but <laughs> I remember I went with Chet one time. He called me and he said, "Hey, uh, I'm getting this award. They're they're uh, I've got to go downtown." And he said, "Me and John Fogarty and somebody else they were getting this big award. It was a it wasn't like an award show. It was just a luncheon kind of thing." And so I, I go, "Yeah, I'll go with you." So I went, and uh, we're standing there, and the guy's going like, "They." I watched him, John Fogarty. They gave him this award and. He was gracious and we said hi to him and and Chet's standing there and they're going like this guy's a legend. They're introducing Chet and Chet bends over to me and says, I'm starting to get all these awards because everybody thinks I'm getting ready to kick the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> when you get this old and start getting ready to kick the bucket, you'll be getting awards too. Like this. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> One more quick chat story because I thought this was really neat. When Chet passed away, and I know that was a, a rough time uh, for you because you guys yeah. were close, yeah. and you went over to um, his house, and I remember you telling me that there was a beautiful bouquet of flowers on the table, and you asked Chet's wife who they were from, and she said, go look at the card, and you finish it. Yeah, she was so... Leona was my sweetheart. I just loved Leona, Chet's wife, and <clears throat> she was just tremendous. And I felt so bad for her loss. And Jim, I went to her house, and she came over like a mother would do. And she was, I always had tears in my eyes. And she came over and was going, like, it'll be okay. She was consoling me. Wow, I was yeah. like, this is backwards. And then I looked over, as you said, I looked over on the kitchen counter, and there's this, I mean, I've seen big bouquets of flowers, but this was like, 10 times that the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It just covered the whole thing. And I, and as you alluded to, I said, gosh, Leona, who are those beautiful flowers for? And she goes, she smiled and goes, go read the card like that. And I went and looked at the big card on it and it said, uh, let's see if I hopefully I'll get this right. It said to Leona, Sorry, I'm sorry you lost your great man, Paul McCartney. Wow. And also, that, that mm -hmm. made me have such a new, if it's possible to have more respect for someone than I did, I did after that, you know. And yeah. Really respect. You, you can almost hear Paul, though, talking to the florist going, make sure it's the biggest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the songwriter him said, make sure you say. <laughs> yeah. Leona, I'm so sorry you lost your great man. Yeah. I mean, 
I guarantee you he was a stickler on how that was worded, you know. For sure. But anyway, uh, I was going to, one little uh, period on the end of the story a moment ago. Uh, so the night that the awards show, the Grammys, Chet beat me at the awards, and we laughed our heads off at his voice message. And then we went to the Grammys, and I got beat. And then when I get home the next week, Monday's coming up, and Karen gets a call from uh, Chet, and he leaves a message on her voice, and he says, tell Stevie to come down to Cafe Milano next Monday. Uh, uh, well, actually, I think Karen talked to him because she told me later I was gone or something, but Karen said, well, I'll try. And I remember she said, Chet said, no, don't try. He has to be there Monday. And so, Jim, I go down, and uh, uh, I get emotional telling this story right here. Uh, I get down to Cafe Milano um, that night, and I notice the place is packed, and there's guitar players, as there always is everywhere, good, really good guitar players. I saw Jimmy O'Lander and some great players. And Chet, uh, I saw a bunch of cameras, uh, still cameras and movie cameras, and so video cameras. And so I, Chet, halfway through the show, he goes, folks, he goes, I won a Grammy this last, last week, and everybody claps. And he goes, but there's a guy in the audience that I thought should have won a Grammy, should have won it. And I'd like to get him up here now. He should have won this. And he said, so let's get him up, Steve Warner. And I get up and I go, what? Wow. And I'm walking up. To, I'm actually looking around going like, who's he talking about? And I walk <laughs> on stage and Chet hugs me. And, and I noticed there's cameras are on me now. There's cameras following me. And uh, so... Chet goes on to say, uh, you should have won this Grammy, blah, blah, blah. And he joked about, I've got 16 of them. And, and then he, so he reaches down and he, get, he pulls up a Grammy and he goes, so I wanted you to have this. And he gives me a Grammy. And he says, folks, you can't give these to people. He said, the Naris frowns on that. He goes, they, it says it, it's actually not legal to give these away. And he goes, and that's exactly why I put a plaque on it, had this plaque removed and remade and it says on loan to steve warner from chad atkins so here's steve and he gave me wow. his wow. And I, I still have it I, i'm lucky to have four of those and then the one that chet gave me i was just going to say was that before you won your actual first grammy i i think at that point i had i had two at that time and then chet gave me one but here's the now here's the old henry ending now chet I get done and I'm in tears. And so Chad goes, but wait a minute. And he reaches behind his amp and he pulls out this plaque and he goes, I want to make you a CGP too. Wow. And he reached this plaque and he made me a CGP that night, the same night. So it was a heck of a night, you know? No kidding. <laughs> and he, get, he gave you a, he's given you guitars too, has he not? Yeah, I've got about four or five of his guitars. And uh, he gave me a White Falcon back in 85 Jeez. that I, that, uh, I borrowed it and he said, do you like that guitar? And I go, sure. I love it. And he goes, well, you can keep it. It's the ugliest, gaudiest thing I've ever seen. So because <laughs> <laughs> I can't stand that damn thing. And he goes, if you want to get it out of here. And I go, well, will you sign it for me? He goes, sure. And I had him sign it across the front. You've seen it, Jim. Oh yeah. <laughs> if you had to uh, leave your house, say there was an emergency, you can only take one guitar with you. Oh man. I know that's a tough question. Be rude, wouldn't I? I mean, it'd be. What do you have? One you know you'd have to go for? 
I'd probably have to grab my dad's guitar first. Yeah. One I had that 61 jazz master that I learned to play on. Yeah. But then you think, well, the Chet guitars, I'd have an armful of guitars. I'll tell you that day. <laughs> Jumping out the window. <laughs> you'd be out, you'd be outside and you'd be like, oh, did Karen make it out? <laughs> oh, I hope she don't hear that. <laughs> Karen, Karen oh, she grab a few it. guitars, would you? She already knows it, you know. <laughs> That's a tough thing with being a guitar player. There's, the buying never stops, does it? It's a it's a habit. It definitely is an addictive habit. And I will say though, I don't keep a lot of guitars here. I I'd only have a handful here. I keep them elsewhere so that they're in a safer place. But but I do have a handful here that I would I'm a little more manageable if I had to grab them. But I got some good ones. So I've been collecting through the years. Uh, you know, I've got a a lady gave me a a a night it's a fifty one no caster. Uh, what a Fender Nocaster before there was even a Telecaster, you know, she, yeah. her husband's, he, they, he bought it brand new. And I remember that story because I remember when you got that guitar Yeah, yeah. and you, you were doing a show uh, and, and the, um, the family, uh, I guess, wrote you a letter or this is a while back and said, we have some, you know, my dad, my husband's guitar, he wanted you to have it when he passed. He just yeah. recently passed. And I remember you thinking that it was just going to be some beater of some kind. And well, they oh, how nice. Yeah, that's nice. It's great. It's going to be a, what, it's 81 telly or whatever. That's so nice. Yeah. And it would have been. It would have been. But then we opened. I, my guitar tech goes out and brings her back, her, the lady and her daughter, and uh, at the show. And this is right after the show. And uh, I, Colin comes, my, my guitar tech comes up, and I said, Colin, what kind of case is it? And he goes, it's a 70s Telecaster Fender case. And I go, oh, that's awesome. How nice. 70s Tally. Late, he said probably late 70s, the Tolex, uh, if I had to guess. And so then oh, we opened up the case, and I, I started looking and going like, and Colin did too. Our eyes both kind of went, and I start looking. I go, this is an old Telecaster. Then I start looking at the uh, tree the string tree, they call it up there, and then the pickups, and I'm going like, this is this is old, man. Did you know right away that it was a no-caster? No, I knew it was old, old, but I didn't know. And then we took the neck, 323.51, it says penciled in the 323. Wow. Uh, I see, 50, 51 or 2, 50, I, I think 50. Anyway, there was only a six-month period of time that yeah. been didn't they there was no tell they originally called those guitars broadcasters you guys yeah. probably know, already know this stuff but and then gretch already had a broadcaster so they said no no so they we already have a guitar here guys you can't have one called broadcaster so legally they had to go cut off the name telecaster off all the six months of those got out with no name and those eventually became known as no casters and there's only six months worth of them out there it, it made it mm -hmm. so didn't he have his name in decals like Rusty or something like that, like on the guitar? I think no, but no, but if you took the what I think what you're thinking of, Jim, is if you take the pick guard off, he had started to you could you could see where he had, was started to make a pick guard. He started to make a homemade kind of leathery pick guard or something. You can see the remnants when you take the pick guard off. You know, he was going to do a a lefty Brazil or some kind of thing. Looks like, but. He was a tinkerer because underneath the pit guard, you can see some little holes drilled 
you don't see it with the pick guard on it. But I mean, that's so brilliant and nice of the, that family to gift me that guitar. I mean, I'm touched. I told I told his wife. She said the only thing I want is I don't want it. Don't want anybody. Don't. don't I don't want to be uh, any credit for this. We don't want any advertising. We don't want any. Uh, you know, don't. So we want to be anonymous. You know, and I said, well, no worries on that. And I said, I'll let you know. Promise you, I'll be playing this. Uh, and I played it on the Grand Ole Opry about three weeks later. And I had them drive. They they came into Nashville and was I had them backstage, and uh, they got to see. She got to see her husband's guitar played on the opera, you know. So. Wow, that's, that's a great story. Kind of a nice tribute to him, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, speaking of the Opry, now you've played on the Opry lately with no audience and that whole deal. Uh, what was that like? What's that experience like? Well, I've done, I've did, I've done three Opry's in 2020. The first, the first one, uh, well, actually, no, I've done four because I, the first, Two was with no audience, 4,400 empty seats, and just the crew. There was about there was only ten people in the whole building, whole complex, wow. uh, counting band and crew and stagehands and stuff. And that was the weirdest thing I've ever. Although doing my little Warner Wednesdays, I sort of was used to it because of that. We we did our Facebook Live Warner Wednesdays ten in a row every week on Wednesday. We did them. So, you know, we still do them once a month. Yeah. We missed last month, but but having done those, it made me kind of be aware of you finish the song and then you have crickets. You know, yeah. so <laughs> which I you anyway. Really, let's face. It. <laughs> hey, are you going to do uh, any more of those Warner Wednesdays? You've got one coming up, don't you? We're going to do one uh, December 9th. and uh, I'm hoping to have maybe a special guest. Uh, possibly uh m might do probably we'll do some christmas songs and and uh, so we're going to do uh my final 2020 warner wednesday december 9th are you allowed to say who the special guest is or are you allowed to give us uh, a uh, uh, yeah i am i, I don't it's probably going to be possibly ross my son who lives oh. in new york ross is coming home if i can rope him into playing a whirly or something with me or He'll be quarantined with us, of course. But I also thought about bringing in my friend Randy Hart, if I can talk him into it. He plays keys and yeah. uh, a lot of stuff together, a lot of Christmas stuff. He knows my stuff better than I know my stuff. So I don't I know. I Are you going to play Brian maybe too? So oh, that would be amazing. Yeah. Please yeah. tell me you're going to play. Uh, I will have to say to you your Christmas memories album. What year is that? You know, uh, what was that, Jim? Ninety. It's got to be early 90s. Right? I was going to say like 93 maybe or something like that. Uh, so we have in our household here, you know, there's just a, a I'm going to say there's two records that we have to listen to. Like it's just not Christmas. Well, I know one's the, the Carpenters. Uh, I, got the, <laughs> I got you going on that. I think I did. Oh, man. <laughs> and the Carpenters and Steve Warner's Christmas Memories. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. and sorry, if we're going to add one more, Guitar Christmas is pretty spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> that was an interesting one, the Guitar Christmas. Totally no accompaniment. No, I really didn't. It was really warts and all for real on that. I didn't do, I basically, 
I did most of them. And you can tell it too when you hear it. Darren would hear it and go crazy probably because I sometimes I listen down and go, ooh, I had I was engine I can tell I engineered that because I had my mic pre up too hot. I can hear where it's a little bit too I got a little too loud right there, you know. And, no. But you recorded that all in your in your studio. Yeah, I did and no was- like I say I no clicks and no I mean I really didn't do much, sports and all, you know, and just kind of turned it on and played, you know. But the, the Christmas memories, man, I that's that's the only Christmas album I've done that's like a classic in the classic style, you know, of, of orchestra orchestrated and we uh, I did uh, three songs with the Chieftains. You sure uh, did. Brown yeah. Bannister produced that album. Uh, we did it in like three different studios, went to Ireland and did the stuff with the Chieftains. And then Nancy Griffith is on that album. And oh. so more, uh, more O'Connell and uh, I see Mark O'Connor, Chet Atkins is on it, of course. Yeah. Who other guests. I had some guests on there, but it was so fun. And uh, just that, as you know, Jim, you and I have talked about this. It's uh, a ranger season every Christmas. You and I love that Christmas music. I know, and I know uh, we've talked about it. I've, it's so much fun to play that music and those melodies and the chords and stuff every year. I look forward to it. Well, so that's what I love about that album is that it, it it's current sounding, um, but at the same time, you really do pay homage to the the classic Christmas records of the past. It's we try to, yeah, and. Yeah. Brown Bannister was so good. He the only album I ever made with him, but we got along so well. Most of it, we had a house uh, down on Music Row. He rented a house for a while, and that whole house was made into a studio. And I remember he had some real old Mike Prees and some real. I think he had a C12, an old C12, and we just left all week. We would just leave that everything. We never turned anything off. We just left it on, burning. Week, you know. <laughs> the cover of that CD, of course, or that record is famous because it's you and your boys, Ross and Ryan. And I'm going to guess that Ross is like about three years old in this picture. Yeah, all right. And, and I love this story because he's just <laughs> smiling away. But you, 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 you want to tell the story, story of the Oh, how deceiving that smile is. Right? <laughs> you know. You know better than anybody how Ross was when he was three and four. <laughs> four five. Let me just say, when Ryan was young and a, a baby and even a young toddler, I remember thinking, "What's people talk about this fatherhood stuff? This kid never makes a sound. He sleeps all the time. He's, you know, I got this thing, man. You know, I'd come off the road and go, yeah, this is not bad at all. It's sleeping through the night. And then Ross came along. (laughs) 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 Ross, I will say this now, Jim, we'll watch a video of when they were little and Ross will look at me now. Sometimes he'll watch them and just go, oh my God, was I really that bad? Did I really do that? I remember, so I just got to tell you the story really quick because Ross was apparently not settling for this picture that you were putting on the front cover of your album. And he just wasn't. So you guys, hot, you guys got on the phone and hired a clown, and the, the clown stood just outside of the 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 lens. <laughs> <laughs> I 
beside the photographer. <laughs> and it's the only way you can get Ross to smile for the picture. It's so great. Looking at that picture and knowing that is the best part of that album cover. And you know, Jim, you know, you know, Ross, at that time, Ross was so spoiled. We had him so spoiled. I'll take the blame on that one. But he was so spoiled that if he got it in his, if he knew you wanted him to do something, then he would go the opposite way and you'd never get him to do it. He was just, he got it in his head. I'm not doing that. You can't. Yeah, we've got, we've got one of those. His name's Ryan. And, <laughs> And it's not, it's not anything to do with him being spoiled. It's just control. And, and I, I remember when I would come in, uh, of course, you were always so gracious. Whenever I would come to Nashville, you would always say, don't stay in a hotel. You come stay at our place. And I would stay in your guest house. And, I, and often I would just say, you know what, guys, I'm going to take Ross uh, to the mall. <laughs> and I would just give you a bit of a break. <laughs> Because he he wasn't bad. He was just he just would not stop. He just would talk and talk and. But he was such an interesting young Ram. guy to talk to. I just I I loved him. And he turned into a if I may brag a minute, you know, he turned into such a fine young man and and was a composer and lives in New York and he he's very uh, you know. Uh, I think he's very uh, introverted, and now it's I mean totally not like that. Now he's he's so uh, you know definitely a lot quieter now. That's yeah, and boy, he was he was on fire in those days. But I'll I'll back up Jim and tell you the front of that the front part of that story you may or may not remember of the album cover. My friend in Indiana had that sleigh brought. He drove that down from Indiana. It was an old sleigh from eighteen late eighteen hundreds. Wow, this guy's. It collects antiques. This is an old, old slave. You look at that picture again. It's beautiful. And anyway, so whose big idea was it to do this stackum album cover? Oh, it was mine. We'll get a horse. We'll get a dog. <laughs> we'll do play. We'll get our boys. It'll be great. You'll love it. So I, the minute we get to that little, it was a tiny little photo uh, studio. The horse, uh, we got a, ho a horse wrangler on the horse. He brought the horse in. My friend owned the Dalmatian, the Wood Newton, the songwriter Wood Newton. That the dog hated the horse, so <laughs> during the whole shoot, you could hear. I could hear. I could hear the whole. I heard that dog. And you'd hear Wood go, "Sparky, Sparky, quit it!" And then he quit. And then a few minutes later, you'd hear. <laughs> and then the horse was backing up on that. I remember we rented that backdrop, and nowadays you would do. Like you're doing, Darren. You the, you know. I mean, Crazy. think about. We spent all this money and had them fly a backdrop in. That's a Christmas scene. But, you know, I mean, that's crazy back in those days. But we did it. And the horse. How, how should I say? Uh, well, let me just put it to you this way: the horse. Uh, we 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 had to do a lot of cleaning before we sent it back. <laughs> 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 and then the dog hated the horse. Ross, what? we got him to smile. We had to hire a clown. And you remember the clown was there and like somebody goes, Well, I we I know a guy that we can a clown and like boom, the clown was there going like, Hey Ross, hey, you know, like how did this clown get here? Does he live next door? He's here <laughs> <two seconds." laughs> Any good photographer will always have a clown on hand. Yeah, on standby. And you know what? We took <laughs> we it felt like we worked for 
five hours to get that one snapshot that we use. It's like yeah. I've never exhausted in my life, you know. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Do you still? Uh, I wanted to ask you about in your studio. You had those two Sony consoles. Oh, the DMXR. Yeah, I remember we we stopped in one day when we were in town with Jim. I remember that. And saw those. And it's the first time I had seen the, the two of them. Uh, where did they end up? Do you know? Or do yeah, you we, we, when those first came out, I remember seeing them at NAMM and I flipped out over them because remember they hyped them as baby Oxfords, you know, they yeah. were a baby Oxford almost, you know, kind of like, and so we got, I had Sony, uh, we had them set up too and we cascaded them and, we used them for a long time and I really liked them. And, but we wound up, they just year by year, they just became more obsolete, you know, and yeah. Sony got to the point where they did not support them anymore. They just flat told you we had a couple of issues and would have to have someone service them. And Sony just flat got to a point where they said, nah, all we mess with now are TVs and blah, 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 whatever. Highline, you know, not, not those. So, yeah. so we, uh, I sold them to a guy uh, about four years ago. He probably uses them for boat anchors now. I don't even know what he uses. <laughs> I don't know. But all, this guy was all over him. He was he was he had a whole collection of the DMXR 100s, and I'm really shocked that we that we found someone that wanted them. But I mean, obviously, there's people that still look for that stuff. But man, they're really they really got obsolete. But we we I liked them, and we got our use out of them for many many years i've made a lot of records and we won a grammy on those two things so wow we, yeah. that chad atkins record we cut on those and i got a, my half inch machine my ampex half inch machine that we used and uh that's all the vintage you know the vintage gear i use but some old ribbon mics that i use too but uh i got some i got chet's uh right there i got his macintosh gear jim if you remember it was in his uh I don't know, Darren, if I had it out then, but it's some Macintosh gear that was Chet's that was in his office when I met him, and that was his stuff he listened to music on. And, wow. wow. Uh, he gave it to me uh, many years ago as a Christmas present. Wow. Jeez. But uh, I, I'm just totally in the box now. Like, I don't even have a console now. I just yeah. I just use, uh, just I'm in the box with the uh, Pro Tools, and, you know, Ross uses, my son Ross, we have Ableton. He uses Ableton all the time, and I use Pro Tools. So when he's here, he has Ableton here. On if I have it for him, he's getting ready to be here for a couple months and work up here. And yeah, but I thought about getting an API console. Just they make a hybrid now, more of yep. a smaller little API. You probably know the one I'm talking about, yep. but I'm thinking about doing that. I really like. I'm old school. I like having faders. And, yeah, me too. And using the faders, but. Uh, there is, there is something about going back, right? Because I, th I find that when you, when you work in the box, as they say, um, that do you find that music becomes sort of more visual, like you're just constantly staring at the screen and you're not really trusting your ears, whereas if you're using faders and you're dialing stuff in with your hands, you're, you're allowing your ears to do the work. I have a theory on that, and I think I'm probably not alone in this, but I think musicianship in the old days, when I say that, I mean, even way back, you know, I think old days, forties, fifties, sixties, I think the musicianship 
was so much greater than now because people did use their ears. I find myself all the time going like, why am I staring at this stupid waveform? I don't, I'm not, there's nothing to see here, folks. You know, it's like, you need to be using your ears, you know, and back in the old days, you know, they'd make records. I didn't do this, but I remember hearing people talk about it. They would do the direct to disc, you know, they, and Man. people, if anybody messed up, you, you, you had to start over. Everybody went again, you know, you just, there was no, and that made the musicianship really, really go to another level because you didn't want to be that one guy that messed it up over and over, you know, so. Cause but, it's then also, but then also though, there was a certain amount, like there were the odd, I mean, you can dial up any old record, Beatles, anything from the forties, fifties, Elvis. And there's mistakes on there. Oh, definitely. There's speeding up, there's mistakes, there's wrong notes. And, you know, you, but I think that's part of the charm of some of those records. You know, you listen to, records in the old days but pre-click you know and they by the end of the record you're up three clicks from where you started you know right. and yeah. it was you know bazillion selling record you know and uh, so now you can fix everything so is that a good thing i mean if you can go in and take every kick and every snare and line them up perfectly is that is that a good thing what's your opinion I don't, in my humble opinion i i'd think it you know, it depends on who you're working with. If you got people that understand, uh, you know, that there's no such thing as perfect, you know, and that the tuning, what I don't like is when people just tune and, and slide and move things just as part of the process, even if they don't even necessarily need it, they just right. do it. That's what you're supposed to do. You know, to me, it's, it takes the real out of the feel and the realness and, and out of the record, you know, there's nothing, if I can do it with everybody in the room, I'd much rather do it that way. Mm -hmm. With that feel and it's a performance, you know, and, and I'd much rather do it that way. Having said that, damn, it's great, isn't it, to be able to do it this way? And and then you can tune something if you want to. So yeah, I mean, you know, we're spoiled having both worlds. So I do its, like has its pluses like, and minuses, really. Like yeah, you, so you can fix those things that you know. Sometimes you have that great that great track and it was just one thing or that wasn't quite right but then you can fix it but i think too, too yep. many people get a, a track that they think is pretty good it's pretty good and we can fix it later instead of getting a really great track yep. and maybe fixing one thing Aaron, um, you and you're hitting on it exactly yeah you can't fix bad to start with you know it's just gonna bad's always gonna be not good enough you know but what, that's what I meant, what you're saying exactly when I say you get the right people that understand it, and you do, if you, if you, you know, you understand that you get a really good performance and then you, if you need to fix something, a note or two, or, you know, what if, you know, just so, like you say, so many people just do it because they use it as part of the process. But, yeah, there's, like, like we're saying, there's nothing like when everybody's on the same little stars line up and everybody's on the, same wavelength you know it's i tell you a record that i did that on and i'm dropping names here, but <clears throat> garth brooks cut my song long neck bottle yeah <clears throat> i wrote that with rick carnes and garth asked me to play on it and we go in we run it with the band everybody hears it we run it a couple times and then they go well let's put one down and so we put it down and i'm sitting there watching i can see garth he's four feet from me in a booth and he's tearing it up, man, you know, and I played the solo 
And uh, as soon as I, we finish, we're all, the energy, everybody's, my adrenaline is so high, you know, I'm like, oh my God, that was so good. And I did a scat solo on it. That was, I just did it. I, we didn't even discuss it before. The engineers were probably going like, what the hell? Because I, I don't even know if it was too loud or I just did it. And then so when we walk in the room, they all go, oh, I love that scat. So it must have worked. We listened to it. And then we go back and they go, well, let's just do another take. We did two takes on Long Neck Bottle and they wound up using that first one. It was just the first blush. It wasn't even, yeah. I mean, I think somebody might have fixed something maybe, but like redo I, like part or two. But that was just the first thing that popped out. I was at I was at your place. I I don't know if you remember this. I was in the kitchen when you got the call that that Garth was uh, cutting. Off. How many backflips did I do? I don't even remember. Was that a lot? <laughs> and and I will also remember that's when you started kind of going. Hmm, I'm going to build a studio on my property. <laughs> no, it's funny how that works. Because like, you had a great studio in your you had a great studio in your house. Uh, but then I remember hearing you talking about, yeah, I think we're going to, we're going to build a studio on the property. And I remember the first time coming <laughs> to your place to see this, and I don't know what I was imagining, like a garden shed or something, you know, <laughs> and the thing that when I walked in and there, there's an elevator and it's like, oh, okay, this is serious. <laughs> Don't want, who don't need an elevator, Jim? You got to have. One. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, we were building this place, and Karen called. Karen called me one day, and she said, "We haven't even poured the footer yet. You know, we're just getting ready to break ground." And Karen goes, "Well, I found an elevator." And I go, "What?" And she found somebody that was. They had started to build a house, and then they, I guess for whatever reason, it didn't happen, and so they were selling their their lift. You know, and so we built the plans around that stupid elevator <laughs> so and then that's by awesome. the way that's jerry reed elevator thank it, you it's called the it's the jerry reed elevator and the reason is jerry used to come out here his last two albums that he did we did here and uh, we would always when we kept, walked in the door we would always come up the steps and jerry would always veer to the left we're on the for people out there we're on the second floor obviously but but and it's in the corner of the building and the steps or on the other corner. So Reed would always start heading to the left corner of the building in the garage and we'd go to the right. And Jerry, his own words, he would always say, you suckers can go up the stairs. I'm going to take the Jerry Reed elevator. <laughs> <laughs> and so after he did that every day, he would say, I'm going up the Jerry Reed elevator. See you guys. And he never <laughs> went up the stairs. And so we'd always meet him up here. And then so after he, there's a sign in there now that says, the Jerry Reed elevator. After he died, I put a sign up since the Jerry Reed elevator. That's so great. And then the up and down, I put one of them. I put a little sign on the up. It says, uh, "On the up, I little have a little sign that says eastbound." And then the other one it says down. Mm. <laughs> That's awesome. That's really good. So, is there anybody that you haven't worked with that you've? If you have to say, I, I haven't had a chance to work with this person and I always wish I could. Is there, is there that one person out there? I mean, we talked about Paul McCartney. If we're going to throw out names, I mean, yeah. you know, oh, I would love to do something. And, you know, it's so funny. The, I was always hoping that I might be around him because of Chet's relationship with him. I was with Chet two or three times when 
he would he would get a letter from Paul and Linda, or he got Christmas cards, or he I was with him in London at one time when Paul called him and they were talking, and Chet was going like, "It's Paul." I'm like, <laughs> "I'm like, oh my god, you know." And so, uh, uh, you know, I always had hoped that our paths might cross via Chet, but it never really panned out. But but that, that's somebody I've always admired. Uh, there's many, of course, but that's yeah. one person I'd love to be around. I, I mean, I just admire his uh, writing and musicianship for so long. What about Ringo? Ringo, these guitar <laughs> players. <laughs> yeah, I met Ringo. Do uh, you know Jim? I met him about a year ago. I met him and chatted a minute, and uh, I was talking to Ringo and Steve Lukather from Toto. Came, was playing with the all-star band, you know, Ringo. Yeah. Now, Ryan and I were talking, my son, we were talking to Ringo, getting a picture and talking to it. And he's very cordial, very nice. And right when I was talking to him, Steve Lukather at the Ryman, he walks around the corner and he goes, Steve. And I go, Steve. And we hug it out. And Ringo, Ryan Slater said, Ringo just looked at him and goes, these guitar players, <laughs> <laughs> they all know each other. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan said, and Ringo kind of started walking off almost like he was annoyed you know like these guitar players they all know each other don't they <laughs> I had to laugh at Lukather like a few weeks ago and I think you posted uh, or, or liked his post on Instagram or something where he had a noisy neighbor and oh, I he, he, he took his guitar amp outside like six in the morning and turned it like up to Jim. 11 <laughs> it was great Awesome. He set up a giant stack of marshals and went outside and he goes, Oh yeah, we'll have some of this. Wow. <laughs> I love it. He is a he is a great guy. Funny, funny dude, man. Yeah, he's uh I seen him in uh, at the damn show this past year and uh in uh yeah. Red Art thing and he was he has some great, great stories. Just you know what you're talking about playing with people. I've been so blessed, man, to get to play with different people i mean last october almost a year ago a little over a year ago i played on i did a thing with brian may and uh, i played with the uh, it was a james Bur burton james burton uh, festival he does this thing every year and it's the money it's for a charity and he brings in all these you know he's james burton so he knows everybody all these rock gods i mean he is a rock god himself but so i get to the show and there, there's so many people on the show and so I keep saying, James, when do you want me to play? And he goes, well, I don't know. Just, I'm not sure. And then the show, it was coming down for the show to start. And I go, James, when do you want me to play? And he goes, I think about three quarters of the way down, I was going to have you open the show. But so all these people started playing. And then so Randy Gardner, my, my, you know, Jim, you know, Randy, my, my engineer that works up here a lot and my, been with me for 25 years. Randy was with me and he comes up and he says, well, I got good news and bad news. I know when you're going off, uh, it's about three quarters down in the show. It's at the Skirmerhorn, our symphony hall. And he says, the, the good news is you're about three quarters down in the show. The bad news is you're going to follow Brian May and you're on, you're on right after Brian May and right before Joe Walsh. And I go, <laughs> Oh, okay, great. <laughs> and wow. so I stood on there and Brian, I got to hang out with him. He was so, such a gentleman, you know, loved meeting him and hanging out. And, uh, 
And so, right, I'm standing there watching and he's going on and he's out there and the place is packed and he's killing and he does his set and he gets done and he lays his guitar down. Thank you. It's Brian May from Queen, for God's sake. He walks off and then they go, now here he is, Steve Warner. And so I walk out and I play by myself. He played with the whole band, uh, a band that they had together. And then I played by myself. And uh, and I, first words, I go, well, nothing like coming out after Brian May and before Joe Walsh. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I did, I, I did really well. Okay. And, and then when I got done, I walked off and Joe Walsh came over to me and gave me a hug. And, and so I go, man, I left him something. I left something for you, Joe. Go get him. Man. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. But well, we're we- lucky. Aren't we all of us are lucky to get to play with who we've played with through the years. You know, some of my fondest memories are recording with Glenn Campbell. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I did a duet with Barbara Mandrell, Nicolette Larson. I did a duet with her one time. Uh, I mean, just on and on getting to play with, so many cool people, you know, through the years. And yeah, and it all started with Dottie West. It sure did. Yeah. Yep. Up in a little nightclub in Indiana, Indianapolis called the Nashville Country Club. You know, uh, she said, Can you go on the road family. with me tonight? And I go, I'm 17. I'm a senior in high school, Dottie. Come on. Yeah. I'm still in high school, you know. So. Uh, I look forward to hearing you play with McCartney. Say that again, Jim. I'm sorry. I, I look forward to hearing you play with McCartney. Well, Josh, I don't know that that's ever going to happen. He certainly don't need me to play with him, but I would love it. Wouldn't that be great? Actually, I think he, I think he would benefit greatly from uh, having well, you. Well, I tell you what, it would be fun. I know for real, I would be, uh, you could probably hear the, you'd think it was cast the nets, but it would be probably my teeth chattering. I'd be so scared. <laughs> I think your, your version of uh, uh, Get Back was probably the best thing on that come together uh, compilation. Wasn't that a cool album? I mean, that whole album was a great idea. And the guy that uh, Brent Hedgecock did a video for us, I wasn't even on that label, as you remember. I was not on Capitol yet. I was still on yeah. Aristotle. And they had us do that version of Get Back. And but they asked me what I wanted to do, and that's what I picked. But, but boy, that guy, Brent Hedgecock, he did a video. Remember that video, Jim? It was, sure do. It was so fun. It was kind of a takeoff on the, the Beatles, the uh, yeah. Beatlemania of the early 60s, you know. Yeah, yeah. So fun. Uh, but yeah, that was great. Excellent. Well, I know we've taken a bunch of your time and I really, really appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to bringing Turning the Road uh, to everybody so they get to hear that and see that. And Oh, man. Um, that was a real pleasure being able to work on that. Well, thanks, Darren. Say my pleasure, man. And hearing you guys, what you did to it and getting a chance to sing and do, you know, do a little bit of the string stuff was fun. And but anytime I can work with my buddy Jim, I'm in on it. So it was so much fun. And I'm so proud of that song to start with, Jim. It's That's a goodie right there. We've written a lot of songs together, man. And we sure have. And that's, that's definitely of, at the top of the list there. For we've, I was thinking about how many tunes we've written, man. It's a bunch. And Darren, you put some magic on it. It really sounded great. And Thank you. I can't wait to see the video. Send me that video. I'd love to see it. Yeah, so, I'll do it right away. It's uh, so, uh, it Yeah, it's right cool be on that stuff and get to still be doing music it's fun and it? i love doing it let's just keep doing it all right uh you and our song uh, we're just a couple of buddies jim we got yeah. to man. yeah that that i can't wait for everybody to hear that one too that's that, gonna be good right so yeah. always yeah. good now let's keep doing it 
Awesome. Well, if uh, anyone listening wants to stay in touch with what you're doing, uh, what's the best way to stay in touch? Facebook and the usual yeah, stuff? Yeah, all the usual places. Uh, I'm on Instagram a lot. Of the Facebook, uh, I have a website, you know, just stevewarner.com. So, yeah, all those places, you know, so. It's it's funny. I look back and uh, I've done a bunch of live sound over the years and, and uh, on the back of my head, there's always one person I thought if I ever had a chance to mix a show and there'd be, you know, two or three, you were always on the list. So oh. I always wanted to mix a Steve oh. Warner because your vocals are so great and the playing so great. And Thank you. Uh, if there's ever a chance to slide me in for one show, even if it's, you know, in the basement somewhere. <laughs> you better be careful. To. I'm calling you, man. That's I'm serious. That's awesome. If we can get back to playing live shows, man. I'll stand yeah. back at the board with him, uh, Steve, and I'll, and I'll just every once in a while lean over and mute you. <laughs> Turn Terry up. You know. <laughs> no, you're going to be on stage playing piano. Are you kidding? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's, there's so a much. show, uh, speaking of muting, I'll end with this. <laughs> I tour with this show. It's kind of a Jersey Boys type of show. And at the end of the show, all the guys kind of come out and and they say, and John, and, you know, and they give her. And there's one guy that always thinks he's the best. And the, his name was Rick. <laughs> and every time he'd come out, he'd be, and, and I mute every single time. So it'd be, and. <laughs> <laughs> it would be nothing every single time. Oh my god, that's hilarious! I tell you what, I always say the guy, the front of house guy, that's who you kiss butt. You take care of that guy because your whole world is in his hands, yeah. man. Yeah, I always, yes. yeah. Well, thanks again, uh, Jim yep. and sure. Steve, and it was a great conversation and great this stories. Yeah, really, 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 hey. really appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Oh, my God.